Welcome to Hollywood Babble, Episode 5, the podcast for film lovers, movie buffs, cineasts, cinephiles, fanboys, film freaks, picture goers, and popcorn munchers. Today, we'll enter a twilight realm of less familiar film pioneers, German and Eastern European cinema pre-World War I. We'll discover an expressionistic reality, strange characters, and warning signs of a darker future. When you round up the usual suspects for pioneering filmmakers, you have the U.S., France, and Great Britain. But Germany and Central Europe also have a rich, if unrecognized, history. Richard Wagner's immersive opera would stimulate the audience's senses and create a dreamlike experience that prefigured motion pictures. And early German filmmakers followed his lead, focusing on psychological aspects of motion pictures and delving deep into troubled minds for an expressionistic result. Let's meet the men who would challenge Lumiere and Edison as inventors of the medium. Max Glendowski, Oscar Mester, and others even less familiar can tell us a fascinating story that is often overlooked. These are the Cineroads less traveled, Welcome to Hollywood Babble. I'm Jeremy. Thanks for listening. Let's begin with the ancestor of Deutsch Kino, Max Sklandowski. His father, Karl Sklandowski, spent a decade touring Germany and Central Europe giving magic lantern shows, while just off stage his sons, Max and Emil, looked on. With this experience under his belt, Max developed a projector in 1895 that could dissolve between two loops of film playing at 16 frames per second. He called it the bioscope and demonstrated it first privately in July 1895 and then publicly at the Berlin Winter Garden Theater in November 1895. Max's machine was an improvement on the standard Magic Lantern show. He showed nine films, six seconds each. I won't even attempt saying the titles in German, but here's a gist of the vignettes, all produced in 1895. Children performing an Italian folk dance... Skinny man and fat man performing acrobatics, a mustached man boxing a kangaroo, a Russian dance with kicking heels, a serpentine dance, wrestlers and speedos, and finally Max and Emil taking a bow. The Sklandowskis exhibited their motion picture performances for a month at the Berlin Winter Garden and then moved on to Hamburg by December 21st, 1895. They were scheduled to open in Paris that January 1896, but after the Lumiere show did Bafo box office at the Grand Café in December, the Sklandowski engagement was canceled. The bioscope was dead on arrival. On March 30, 1897, Max gave one final showing in Stetten, Germany. The problem was Sklandowski's device was cumbersome and his film so much shorter. His bioscope was a culmination of magic lantern technology, while the world had moved on to cinema technology. The Lumiere cinematograph undercut Sklandowski's invention, and the bioscope remains a historical footnote. It's interesting to note the path to motion pictures was not a straight line. There were failed experiments along the way. German cinema truly begins with Oscar Mester. 
Mester has been called the father of the German film industry. In 1859, his father, Edward, built a company that manufactured optical equipment, eyeglasses, and medical apparatus. His clients were scientists and showmen. But on the side, Papa Edward also organized magic lantern shows. Immersed in this atmosphere of optics and theatrics, Oscar acquired skills for business, mechanics, and showmanship that would be useful on the road ahead. In 1896, Mester purchased one of Robert Paul's theatographs. We discussed these Edison kinetoscope knockoffs in episode four. Unsatisfied with the tech, Mester made improvements on the device and began film production on his own short subjects in late 1896. His first film was a scenic actuality, Brandenburg Bridge in Berlin, and he followed up with street scenes in front of the Café Bauer in Berlin, in front of the Stock Exchange in Hamburg, Der Altmarket in Dresden, and topical scenes, Kaiser Willem in Danzig, the German Kaiser family, and even dramas with a Teutonic flair, of course, Rapunzel and Hansel and Gretel. By 1897, Oscar's catalog offered 84 films, newsreels, topical scenes, comic shorts, sports films, street scenes, military subjects, and cabaret acts. He also offered time-lapse cinematography of blooming flowers and microscopic cinematography. By September 1897, Mester opened a theater, a screening room, and at a show in November 1897 at the Apollo in Berlin, Mester incorporated sound films. Mester was always interested in audiovisual works, and this will come back in a moment, but sound pictures were there for Mester as early as 1897. Mester was a one-man, vertically integrated motion picture service, producing, distributing, and exhibiting regionally specific content as he continued to introduce new and improved camera models and projectors. In the early years of the 20th century, Mester Productions shifted into high gear. He built a studio on Frederikstrasse in Berlin, the first single-purpose studio in Germany. He outfitted the Frederikstrasse stage with electric lighting, putting Mester film ahead of Edison's Black Mariah, the first film studio in America. Next, Mester structured his operation into specialized divisions, production, distribution, and manufacturing. By 1903, he had a sound film system, the Ton Builder Biophon. This was advanced, a little steampunk maybe, but Mester was a vigorous inventor. He improved the system and was able to roll out sync sound films in 1913, outfitting several theaters with his new and improved biophon. In 1906, Mester cast a pretty blonde Teuton named Henny Porton in a short film. Her popularity exploded, and with this, Mester created a Deutsch star system on par with the first wave of movie stars in America. Like his U.S. counterparts, Mester did not release the names of his stars. In America, Florence Lawrence was the biograph girl, so Henny was simply known as Mester's Machen. By 1910, the public demanded to know this Fraulein's name, and so Mester revealed it. And she promptly demanded a raise in salary. So there you have it. Henny Porton, the first German film star, asking for a raise. 
similar to the formation of the motion picture patents company in America, which created a monopoly and attempted to control the U.S. film industry. We'll get into this in episode 12. Messer attended the Paris Film Congress in 1909 with Georges Méliès and Pathé Frères. Messer was seen as a major domo of European film. But while the patent holders in America had a lock on film production, a corner on the market, the European cartel never quite came together. Still, Mester Film expanded, and by the end of World War I, he sold out, merging his production company to form the backbone of UFA. This was a massive studio which would become the biggest player in town when it came to German Expressionism in the 1920s. But that's a story for another day. Even after selling out, Mester remained devoted to innovating motion picture technology. In August 1928, he was one of the founders of Tobis Sound Film. During the Nazi years, Tobis became one of the four major production companies, along with UFA, Terra, and Bavaria Film. In 1942, the year before Mester died, these companies were merged into one single state-controlled industry, a Nazi film conglomerate. Tobis survived the war, and the Berlin-based distributor denazified, reinventing itself as a distributor of arthouse movies, including Wim Wenders' Far Away So Close from 1993, Luc Besson's Fifth Element, 1997, and Todd Haynes' Academy Award-nominated Dark Waters in 2019. Oscar Mester was a dynamic film pioneer and should be recognized along with the greats, with the Lumieres, Edison, and Robert Paul. He paved the way for Germany's film industry, which rivaled Hollywood for a time, before the setback in World War I, and another harsh blow from World War II. Next, let's look at some unsung film pioneers from Central Europe. Let's remember the near-forgotten Austrian Theodore Reich, the Russian Ivan Akimov Akimovich, and the Pole Kazimierz Prozinski. The U.S., France, and Great Britain are best known for their early film pioneers, with Edison, Lumiere, and Robert Paul. But Central Europe was not without their own inventors and innovators in the race to develop a workable motion picture machine. Theodor Reich was an Austrian painter and printer, in 1895, he developed the chronophotographic apparatus using 42-millimeter film and an intermittent claw device capable of shooting at 10 frames per second. Now, the persistence of vision, the ability for our brains to put together rapidly moving sequential images into the illusion of motion pictures, works best above 12 frames per second. Motion pictures are shot at 24 frames per second, Video is roughly 30 frames per second, and HD video comes in around 60 frames per second for comparison. So you can see the difference this makes. Reich's 10 frames per second would have been a bit jumpy and unclear. Still, it appears that he was able to produce and project images six months before the Lumieres. Reich seems to have demonstrated the chronophotograph in private, but not to a paying public. He planned to bring the device to market in 1896, but technical defects stymied his efforts, and the competition was gaining on him. In one final showing, the lamp house of his projector ignited the flammable film, and it destroyed his machine. 
After this, Reich abandoned his project, ending this Austrian evolution of early film. Ivan Akamov Akamovich was a motion picture pioneer based in Imperial Russia. In January 1896, Akamov received an official certificate for the invention of the stroboscope. His device could record moving images at 15 to 20 frames per second. He built a prototype that was ultimately placed in the Moscow Museum of Polytechnics. But during the Soviet period, this one-of-a-kind apparatus was forgotten and then apparently destroyed. The only evidence that survives is a technical description, some blueprints, drafts, and official papers. No more exists of Akamovich's stroboscope. Poland was a hotbed for motion picture pioneering. Peter Lebedinsky, with help from Jan and Josef Pawlowski, constructed the Kinematograph Lebedinsko. In 1895, this device reportedly captured images at 14 frames per second. Jan Panik invented the telectroscope, a precursor to TV technology, which laid the foundation for reproductions of images and sound using electricity. But the man I want to focus on is Kazimierz Prozinski. This Polish national developed the pleograph in 1894. He made a public demonstration of moving pictures, good, but reports indicate that his pleograph was constantly malfunctioning bad. Among the local scenic subjects and actualities that Prozinski shot were, and I'm not even going to attempt the Polish film titles, episodes from the operation of the ambulance service in 1900, delivery men of the courier Warszawski, and adventures of a carriage driver, both from 1902. What these films have in common is action, kinetic motion, ambulance drivers, couriers, carriage drivers. These films offered early audiences action and adventure and excitement. Also in 1902, Brzezinski produced The Return of a Merry Fellow, said to be the first Polish narrative film. In 1902-1903, Prozinski formed the Pleograph Company in Warsaw. He demoed the machine in Paris and continued research and development, reducing flicker with an improved three-blade shutter, an important innovation for projection. From 1911 to 1915, Prozinski worked with the Warwick Trading Company in London, and there he experimented with sync sound film. In 1915, he returned to Warsaw, and that's when things went south. We know little about this period of Prozinski's work, but 30 years later, when Prozinski was 69 years old, the Nazis invaded and arrested him. He was sent to Mauthausen concentration camp, where he died in 1945. As the era of film pioneers came to a close, it was replaced by a commercially-minded industry, studio systems, and organized distribution networks. Of course, America was not the only industry that developed narrative genres, recognizable styles, an organized structure, and a star system. German film and the movie makers of Central Europe also developed a style that spoke to regional audiences. In the 1920s, German film rivaled Hollywood with a shadowy psychological mannerism called Expressionism. We'll get there next season, but that eerie, distorted aesthetic didn't arrive without precursors. The roots of German Expressionism can be seen as early as the 1910s. 
Berlin's legendary stage director, Max Reinhardt, brought exotic visions to early filmgoers in the Middle Eastern-themed Sumerun in 1910, where dancing girls entice a despotic sheik in a harem filled with sinister eunuchs and hunchbacks. Lubitsch remade the film in 1920. Reinhardt made the medieval set Miracle, in 1912, and pagan nymphs and gods sprang to life in his The Island of the Blessed in 1914. Danish director Urban Gad brought darker visions to the screen with The Abyss in 1910. It was banned in some cities for its eroticism and sexy Danish star Asta Nielsen. Gypsy Blood in 1911 and Song of Death in 1912 also both starred Nielsen, who was the director's wife, by the way. But the true harbinger of expressionism was director Stellan Rye. Rye was another Dane, and he directed a hulking behemoth of a man, Paul Wegner, in a film entitled The Student of Prague in 1913. It's a tale of a young man who makes a Faustian bargain, selling his soul for money, women, and fun. Wegner is incredible, and he would go on to become a familiar figure in German Expressionist classics like The Golem in 1915 and The Sumeron Remake in 1920, as well as Loves of the Pharaoh in 1922. Wegner is great, so great, so memorable with his wide eyes and immense shape. Unfortunately, he goes on to be a celebrated actor in the Third Reich, which is probably why he's not better remembered today. Let's move to Austria. Between 1906 and 1910, one of the most prolific and top-earning Austrian directors was Johann Schwarzer. Schwarzer's production company, Saturn Films, specialized in erotica, nudie cuties with titillating titles like A Modern Eve, 1906, Slave Market, 1907, The Abduction of the Slave Women, and Female Conscripts in 1908. This was an early entry into the women-in-jail fetish genre. This was some hot stuff, and stills have recently been rediscovered, restored, and displayed in Austria. You won't find Schwarzer in film history books, but his early porno smoker stag film blue movie erotic loops played in back rooms of men's clubs. They were naughty, exciting, popular, and very, very lucrative. Another Austrian production shingle was founded by Anton Kohn. Kohn worked with Louise Velti and partner Jacob Fleck to form a studio, the Vienna Art Film Industry, in 1906, and Vienna Kunstfilm in 1910. Louise directed numerous films for these production shingles, making her the second major female director after Alice Guy. Louise started off as Jacob's wife, but somewhere in there she became Anton's wife and went by at first Louise Fleck and later Louise Velti Combe. It may have been an awkward work environment, but despite the wife swapping, Vienna Kunstfilm's roster was more family-oriented than Schwarzer's. They focused on romantic dramas like The Miller and His Child from 1911, which is the oldest surviving Austrian film. Let's go to Russia. Films in the Soviet Union were a state-sponsored affair with major directors turning in historic propaganda that's still studied today. 
I took a great class at NYU Film School with Annette Michelson, who was an expert in this area and a protege of Jay Lida. Now, while Soviet filmmaking is studied, movies in Imperial Russia are mostly overlooked, but there are some interesting examples. Beginning in 1909, Vasily Mikhailovich Goncharov began directing films that fit into the tradition of Russian writers. He made Crime and Punishment and The Death of Ivan the Terrible in 1909, The Life and Death of Pushkin in 1910, Eugene Onegin in 1911. But Goncharov's magnum opus was the feature-length historical epic Defense of Sevastopol in 1911, which dramatized an intense battle during the Crimean War. Ladislav Starovich was the Walt Disney of Russia. He made these amazing stop-motion animated films with bugs. The beautiful Lucanita has these weird black beetles dancing, sword fighting, storming castle walls. This is strange stuff, but very cool, very influential, and worth watching. Yakov Protenziov made The Departure of a Grand Old Man in 1912 and depicted the final days in the life of Leo Tolstoy. The great author had died just two years earlier. But Protenziov might be best known for his picture Father Sergei, 1918, which was based on a Tolstoy story. Father Sergei began production during the Tsar's rule, but it was released in the Soviet era. It truly straddled two worlds. The film depicted a distant time of monks and religious devotion. So in this one scene, where Father Sergei is tempted by a girl, he moves to chop off a finger with his axe to distract himself from carnal temptation. Wow, just wow, this is an intense film. The actor who plays Father Sergei was the incredible Ivan Moshekinsky. What eyes, they were intense, like Rasputin. This was the actor who was used by Lev Kuleshov for his famous Kuleshov effect. But that came later, and we'll cover it next season during our Soviet era. The point of this digression is to see that film was not only an American, French, or British phenomenon. Throughout Europe, motion picture machines were being invented and refined. Many of them didn't work, but they did lead to regional industries. And each of these local production hubs developed a distinctive style. Germany's tradition of folktales, angst-ridden horror, and psychological explorations would lead to expressionism in the 1920s. Russia's early filmmakers aligned with the country's tradition of great writers. That lineage was cut short by the Soviet regime, which instead recognized the power of film to create persuasive propaganda. And in Austria, it's interesting that the first commercial pornography factory evolved. These films aren't studied in schools, but they were financially lucrative, incredibly popular in underground circles, and influential, albeit in back rooms and at smoke-filled stag parties. We've journeyed through films prehistory. We've met the Lumieres, the British pioneers, the European filmmakers. Next episode, we finally arrive in America. We're off to see The Wizard, The Wizard of Menlo Park. Thomas Edison, and discover how he attempted to co-op the movies for himself. This is Hollywood Babble. Thanks for listening. Let's end the episode with a line from my favorite movie buff, my son Jackson. 
Shame, shame, come back. Do you know the film? Visit us on Twitter at Hollywood Babble for the film title, and also tell us your thoughts, comments, suggestions, etc. Here it comes again. Shame, shame, come back. For the right answer, Hollywood Babble on Twitter. This episode goes out to Jim Gladstone, my movie buff attorney buddy. Thanks for so much great film talk. Everyone else, I hope to see you next episode. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. The dumbest dreams are made up. I love the smell of night come in the morning. Go ahead. Make my day.